You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to be with you again this week, Northway Church. Good to be back here in this cyber pulpit with you. Um, uh, if you are just joining us online for maybe the very first time, my name is Shea Sumlin, lead pastor here at Northway Church. Grateful you're with us. We have just finished up 10 weeks this summer of walking through the Psalms, kind of our Summer in the Psalms series of what it looks like to take all of us to all of God. And I hope this series has ministered to you throughout this summer. I'm really excited because next week we are going to launch a brand new series that's probably going to take us about a year and a half. Uh, and that is we're going to start our study in the book of Romans. We have pushed this back and pushed it back and pushed it back. We will push it back no longer. Next week, we're launching Romans. Excited to, to jump into that study with you. But this week, I want to do something a bit different, a little standalone message here in between these series, because I want to speak to the issue of racial harmony and specifically the racial tensions that we have seen so rampant in our country here, even this summer. And, and tensions we know that, that haven't just been around for just this summer, tensions that have been around for the last three, 400 years in our country. And honestly, tensions that we know have been in the world since Genesis 3. But specifically, I recognize the tensions we're seeing in our culture now, they're, they're like a, a molten layers of a volcano or fault lines of an earthquake that just keep building and building and building until finally, on certain times, like we saw this summer, they just they spew out into the streets with an outcry and a plea for justice. A plea like Amos 5 of, oh God, let justice roll down like a river. And we've seen those cries in our communities here for the last several months at an all-time high. And like many of you, uh, I sat in horror back in May when I watched the senseless murder of George Floyd. And I sat in the, the grieved pain of watching the pain of so many African-Americans in our culture crying out with years and years of hurt that were just simply reflected in that one event. And like many others, I've also been grieved here for the last couple of months of just watching the polarization play out in our culture, politically and on social media, just the tearing apart of one another on views towards what we see happening in our culture around us. And all the while, again, there are actual people men and women, minority members of our own church who I've sat in rooms with over these last couple of months and just not listening to, to the political rhetoric that's out there, but listening to their actual fears and concerns and pain and have grieved over that. And so my, my aim here this week in this message is simply to address the issue of racism, the issue of true reconciliation, and what that looks like from a biblical view that presents biblical definitions accompanied by biblical solutions to, to the fractures that we're seeing in our world right now. Now, maybe the first question I wanna address is, is why now? Why am I doing this here at, in August now, the beginning of August versus doing this back in May or June? And there's really a couple of reasons. Number one, my posture right out of the gate when everything that we saw taking place is taking place was just that of lament, just a posture of, of grief, posture of identifying with hurt that's in the community around us and immediately entered into those spaces of lamenting with 
personal friends that I know, with partnerships that we have, and certainly the cries of the community around us. But also in that, our elders um, are sober-minded about the realities that are around us, but we want to heed James 1.19, which especially in emotionally charged situations applies, which simply tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Myself and our elders have done a lot of listening in this season. We have sat in many rooms with, again, minority members of our church, with members of the community around us, and listening as I've dialogued and conversations with other pastors and partnerships that we have here in the community and just identifying perspectives and pain while at the same time diving further into the word to seek the Lord's counsel. Now, having said that, we know that James 1 does not mean there's never not a time to speak. No, there, there is a time to speak. The scriptures are replete with commands for the church to serve as a leading voice uh, that represents God's kingdom priorities here on earth. We see this. Proverbs 31 tells us to open our mouths for those who have no voice and to judge righteously. Uh, even Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 that I want you as representatives of, of my church, I want you to, to bind on earth what is bound in heaven and I want you to loose on earth what is loosed in heaven, meaning I want you to reject here on earth what what heaven rejects, and I want you to uphold here on earth what heaven upholds. And so the question this week that I want to present before us is what on earth does heaven have to say about these issues of race and racism and reconciliation and ethnic harmony? Five main points I want to make here this week. Five main points that I think are rooted in the scripture. Number one is that we are created equally in God's image. Number two, we are corrupted totally by our sin. And then number three, we are recreated sufficiently through God's son, which then leads to fourth, that we are commissioned representatively now on God's earth. And then in the meantime, fifthly, we wait expectantly in hope for the final consummation of God's kingdom to come. And so I want to work our way through these. This message may be a little longer than normal. And so if you need to pause and take a break and do a two-parter, feel free. But we're going to work our way through these five because they're eternally important for where we find ourselves right now. So first of all, we are created equally in God's image. We must start here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says this. And by the way, we're going to be anchored in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and make your way there, you can make your way there. But I'm going to cite a few other passages. But Genesis 1 is our starting place. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so as human beings, what we learn from this passage, and others like it, is that we are the only ones in all of God's creation, of all the created things that you can see around us, we are the only ones who are made in the perfect image and likeness of God. We are personal beings set apart from any other 
creature in all of creation, ascribed with the fullness of dignity and worth that is found in the very one who made us. This is given to us, not to anything else, but human beings. And we were created to reflect and carry out God's reign and rule on earth as vice regents co-equally together. The only distinction we see in all of God's creation with human beings is male and female. That's the only distinction we, do, we see. And even in that, we are beautifully distinct. We are beautifully complementary to one another. And we are also both perfectly equal, co-equal together, all by God's design. And there is no division though, other than that, there is no division of any race or class or any other partiality of any kind. In fact, the term race isn't even a biblical concept. The term race, you may know this already, the term race is actually a socially constructed term to distinguish between melanin and skin. That's not a biblical term. Now, biblically, we will see later on that there are different ethnicities and geographical people groups with different languages and distinct cultures that would later come as a result of us being scattered upon, upon the earth. But in the original creation and design of human beings, all people were created with equal worth, equal human rights endowed to us by our creator God. And that's why, church, this must be the starting place in any conversation about race or human relations because the way in which we treat one another, the way in which we uh, define one another, the way in which we ascribe worth and value to one another, those cues must not be taken from culture. They must be taken from our creator. And that is why CNN cannot define your worth or who you are as an individual. Fox News cannot define your worth. We cannot take our cues from Trump. We cannot take our cues from Karl Marx. We cannot take our cues from Candace Owens or Robin DiAngelo or your Southern family member or PragerU or whatever you're listening to right now and dang sure can't take our cues from Facebook and Twitter. No, all those things can serve good purposes if they seek to uphold a biblical definition of the image of God and humanity, worth of humanity, but they do not get to define our rooted worth and the rooted worth of another human being. Only God can define that. And he has said, we are equal and to treat each other as such. But something obviously went horribly wrong. Clearly, when you look at the world around us, and that's where we move into our second point, that we are corrupted totally by our sin. Yes, we are created equally in God's image, but we are corrupted totally by our sin. The world that we live in today is not the world that God originally created. God created a world in which if human beings believed, obeyed, and followed him, we would never know of evil, only the good that God has created. But God in his omniscience, he knew the possibility of evil in our hearts. And he purposely withheld that knowledge from us in creation. Like any good parent knows there's some bad, not, bad information out there. You don't want to give your kids, you withhold it to protect them. And God as a loving parent did that for us. But in the day that human beings decided they wanted to depart from God, in pursuit of that knowledge of good and evil, then evil they would know. 
And that evil would utterly ravage humanity. It would affect our hearts and our minds and our will and even the physical creation around us would be fractured and broken in the day that we pursued that. The biblical definition for that rejection of God and pursuing our own knowledge is sin. And that is exactly what happened. Just two chapters after God's creating of man and woman, that is exactly what happened when the first man and woman transgressed God's decrees and dove head first into the pursuit of the knowledge of evil and sin entered into humanity and fractured everything. One of the casualties of Genesis 3, of the fall of man, is the effect it had, sin had on our minds. The theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, when we're told by God through Paul that sin has ultimately led us into the futility of our thinking, that because of the effects of sin, unless God reveals himself and reveals his will, we don't know how to think about God, and now we don't know how to think about man. And all of a sudden now, even though the image of God after the fall was still in place, the, the, the worth and dignity of man was still in place, our perception of it was affected because of sin. Partiality is the way that the biblical word is used that we might call racism or any sort of favoritism. Partiality is what entered in through sin into our hearts, where it is now possible for one human to believe that they are superior over another human being and can use that human being however they want for their own self gain. And we see this immediately after sin ensues. After we move from Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, you see it playing out. When Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel and wants to take out his life, because he views Abel as a threat to what he perceives as his gain. And so he murders Abel. And what's interesting to me is that even when God floods the earth in Genesis 6 and 7 as a judgment against sin and, and seeks to start over with humanity, so to speak, even in that moment, God still upholds the dignity and worth of man and the sin of partiality. When in Genesis 9 verse 6, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by, his, by man shall his blood be shed. You're gonna take the life of another, you're gonna have your life taken. Why? He says right there in Genesis 9, 6, because God made man in his own image. Even after the fall, the dignity and worth of God's original intent in creation is still upheld. And any degradation towards another human being is ultimately an affront to God and his image and worth that he has made us in. But here's the deal, because sin was so pervasive and is so pervasive, we still would not listen to God. And the rest of your Bible and the rest of world history only serves as a testimony of our rebellion towards God and the depth of our sin and the dehumanization that we carry towards other, other fellow human beings. So world history is filled with awful atrocities and homicides and genocides and infanticides 
due to the sin of partiality, a feeling that we are superior over somebody else and can use them to our own gain. Almost every nation on earth has been built through oppression of oppressing another group and overtaking them to take their land. Almost every, every nation on earth has been founded through partiality. Like this is not unique to America. We're not the only country that started with this awful form of oppression. Every country out there, and it still exists today. But certainly we've got our own unique experience with an awful stain going all the way back to even the original conquering of Native Americans on this land, which many of those events didn't just come politically, but many of them came through massacre. And again, the sin of partiality. And then certainly the, the probably the greatest stain of all that, that still bears weight in our conscience right now is that of transatlantic slavery, where we could go over and take another human being as, as a possession, as a commodity, as a good and service to be used for another part of humanity's benefit. And then even in that, we know if just study our history, even our founding documents recorded how we viewed the sin of partiality, that we upheld it as a good thing to where we have implicitly written in our original constitution, chattel slavery, where you, you could permissible to own another human being. And then even in that, we, we know in our early documents of, of treating black, now black human beings as three-fifths of a human being in order to accommodate our adjusted need for seats in the House of Representatives. Like all this is part of our early formation as a country. Partiality was woven into the fabric of our new land. And then even when you think about the, the history of Dallas, we've talked about this many times before here at Northway, but even in the history of Dallas, you know, one of the awful stains of our city is that the very first bill of sale, when, when Dallas became an incorporated community, the very first recorded sale on a ledger wasn't a what, it was a who. It was a woman by the name of Jane Elkins who lived down on the corner of Marsh Lane and Northwest Highway, right down the street from where our church building stands today, was the first recorded bill of sale. We know in the early 1900s, Dallas was home to the largest chapter of the KKK in the entire country. And if you wanted, where literally one third of all men in the city of Dallas were members of the KKK. And if you wanted to be a part of that chapter, you had to get a pastoral recommendation from your church in order to go down to Fair Park and register with the KKK. Now, all of that's part of our history and it's awful. And I, I hope we would all agree that is racism, that is partiality in its worst form. And this is part of our history. And it's not too long ago that that existed right here in our own community. But one of the questions I hear so often is that, isn't all that done with now? I mean, we had the civil rights in the 1960s. Didn't we break free from that explicit form of racism? And the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, praise God, much of the explicit forms have been changed and we're grateful for that. We should celebrate that. But it doesn't mean there is not lingering effects and patterns and attitudes and even lingering effects of certain structures that were in place then that still bear weight in partiality even today that we should lament over. In fact, even the book of Lamentations speaks to this. In Lamentations chapter five, speaking to Israel, when the prophet said, our fathers sinned and they are no more. 
So there was a past history of partiality and they're gone. It's over with. However, the prophet says, but we, the current generation, still bear their iniquities. I mean, there's, there's still lingering residue. There's still forms of the old way. There's still attitudes of the old way that are inherited, that have come down on us even still. And so there are still remnants of that that are here, and we have to acknowledge that. But one of the other questions I get is, well, is there really such thing as systemic racism or systemic partiality? And again, the answer to that is yes and no. Biblically speaking, only people are originally indwelt with sin. Um, only people are. In fact, at the, the final judgment day, uh, businesses are not gonna have to stand before God. Systems and structures in our community are not gonna have to stand before God. People will. And people will be judged by their individual sin. And so that's where sin inherently comes from. But we also know that sinful people are the ones who shape and lead and design systems and structures. And so, yes, those systems and structures can be flawed, can be fueled by a partiality to try to favor one group over another. And so those systems certainly can still exist. Take abortion, for example. The act of abortion begins as a sin of partiality in one's own individual heart in which they believe that one human life is superior over another human life. But we also have systems and structures and legislation in our country that reflects that sin of partiality and murder. And, and so as Christians, we should not only want to stand against the individual sin of abortion that would take the life of another human being, but certainly we also want to stand against and are trying, many in our culture, to stand against the laws and legislation and the systems that represent that sin. And we wanna see those changed. And so I think that's at the heart of the lament that many of our minorities are trying to express in our community today. They, they're saying we're still experiencing the residue, both implicitly and in some pockets explicitly, of, of racism today, of partiality today that still has its fingerprints into some of the fabric of our society that, that grants favor to one and not to another. And I can maybe have a hard time understanding that because that hasn't been my experience. I've benefited and enjoyed from a lot of what our culture brings. But what I need to begin doing is understand that my experience is not everybody else's experience. And I need to be able to, to not be defensive over that, but to lean in and to listen to the stories and the experiences of others in our community to better understand where they're coming from and what our world is like outside of the bubble that I can live in. And so I think that's why we need to do a better job as a church who, again, have historically been silent and even complicit in some of these areas of leaning in and just listening, listening to understand. You know, I mean, one of the best counsel that was given me in marriage conflict was when your wife's hurting and upset, you need to give a fact with a fact and an emotion with an emotion. When your wife expresses an emotion to you, don't counter it with facts right away because you're not listening to her. In fact, grant an emotion to an emotion. Choose to enter in and listen, not to the issue that's at place, but the heart behind the issue and start there. And there's plenty of time to get facts later, but to enter in with that and to seek understanding. But having said that, I also wanna be clear in another area when it comes to 
the total corruption that sin has brought about and the futility of our thinking. There's another problem I am equally concerned about as well right now, and that is the ideology that is driving much of the narrative in our culture today. An ideology that does not root itself predominantly in biblical definitions and biblical solutions, but roots itself in a secular worldview that actually undercuts the biblical definitions and solutions that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The views espoused by critical race theory and cultural Marxism, as it's become known, um, because the formation of these ideologies are distinctively anti-religious from its origin, there, there tends to be no concept of sin when dealing with many of the issues that we see around us. Uh, it's an ideology that believes that guilt is solely inherited by the majority community that one is born into, and innocence is inherited solely by the minority community, the oppressed community that one is born into. And therefore, the highest solution from these ideologies isn't just reform in certain areas, it is total divestment, it is total disintegration of all majority systems and structures that exist in our country today. And what I want to say to you as a Christian and as a pastor, having read the scriptures, that is simply not what the scripture teaches us about sin and the inherent guilt that is around us. Our guilt is found in the individual heart first and foremost. Yes, it comes out through the hands in other ways, but it forms here. And so even if you topple and overthrow all systems and structures in our society in order to form some perceived new society, guess what will still be there on the other end of that new structure and system? Sinful people. And so therefore, sinful people who will then form new systems and new structures informed by their own sin. I mean, is that not, not, is that not how our country started? of leaving one form of oppression while still holding on to another one? Like that's what sin is. It's indwelt within us. And until we, until we start there, we will never find the solutions we're looking for. You can take the people out of sinful structures, but you cannot take the structure of sin out of the people. That is not something you and I have an ability to do is to affect partiality in the hearts of men. Only God can do that. And therefore, that is why thirdly, I think we need to understand not only are we created equally in God's image and we are corrupted totally by our sin, but we can also be recreated sufficiently through God's son. And whereas God's image and man's sin must be the starting place in our definitions for what's wrong in this world right now, it is God's son who must be the starting place for our solution to what can be made right and what can be recreated. And this is where I want you to look with me here briefly at Ephesians chapter two, and then we'll look at a, a passage here in Ephesians four. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, Paul gets done talking about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our vertical salvation with God, our reconciliation to God, whereby Christ came and took our sin on the cross, gave his life for us, and that by faith in his finished work on the cross, that we receive his righteousness, we are adopted into his family. This beautiful story of what the grace of God has done through Jesus Christ to save us and restore us and reconcile us vertically. 
But then when you get to verse 11, Paul also begins showing now what the gospel has done, not just to reconcile us vertically, but how the gospel reconciles us horizontally as well. And Paul says this in verse 11, and he's speaking to the, what this, this time would have been the oppressing community uh, outside of Israel to the Gentiles. And he says, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh of human hands. Now, what he's saying here is he's using human labels, the insiders and the outsiders. Remember at one time you were an outsider. You were estranged and labeled uh, by this insider community right here. Remember what it felt like to be ostracized and to be alienated from one another in humanity? Remember when partiality played itself out that way? And also in verse 12, remember again, the vertical right here. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you remember what that was like when you were alienated from God and you were alienated from man? Remember when partiality played itself out that way. But he says, However, in verse 13, everything's changed. But now, in Christ Jesus, and don't miss this, notice what has changed everything. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments that were expressed in the ordinances, the ceremonies that he might create now in himself one new man in place of the two. This new identity is rooted in Christ, not in anything else. And he says, this new identity, this one new man in place of the two, so by making peace, bringing shalom, if you were to use the Hebrew equivalent, and that he might also reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So understand what this text is saying. Christ has reconciled us vertically back to God through his finished work on the cross. Our sin, which separated us from God, has been taken care of at the cross so that we are brought back to, to God, not counting our trespasses against us, but nailing them to the cross, covering those trespasses with his blood and forgiving all of our debts so that we could be reconciled to God. This has happened through the cross. And we say yes and amen. But it doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say at the same time, that same work on the cross has killed. It's a double play on words right there. Christ's murder on the cross has killed the hostility that exists between us as human beings as well. That literally um, the, the, the bad hostility between Jew and Gentile is now broken down because of what Christ has done on the cross. As 
Tabidi Anawabwe says when he put it this way, the cross became a spear thrust through the heart of racial animosity and racial division. You go, how? How does the cross do this? Because you need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just a constitutional change in one's standing before God, though it is, but it's also us being in Christ, giving new life now by the Holy Spirit that involves a regeneration of one's heart and one's mind. Paul goes on to talk about this in, in Ephesians chapter four, flip over there with me real quick. Ephesians chapter four, Paul talks about how the mind is now changed, how the gospel has now changed the direction of how we are reconciled to one another. When he says, starting in verse 17, starting in verse 17, Paul says, now I say, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, remember in the futility of their minds that noetic effect of sin that enables you to not see well. But now because of the cross, it has changed our minds. It has renewed our minds. And he says, those, those Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, and that includes partiality. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. That doesn't play out here. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's two things I want you to see there about what the gospel does in our horizontal reconciliation. Number one, he says, you didn't learn partiality. You didn't learn favoritism. You didn't learn this dualistic thinking in Christ. Because at the cross, Christ is the ultimate example to us of what non-partiality looks like. He didn't come to die for us based upon who had personal merit with him and who didn't and to play inside or outside or no, it didn't matter. It didn't matter your class, your ethnicity, your social economic status, didn't no matter whether you were uh, an Israelite or a Gentile, it did not matter. Christ came to die for all. And he came to level the playing field and whosoever would put their faith in Christ there is no partiality there, just his grace, so that the, the playing field is leveled. But secondly, he talks about the aspect of the gospel here that recreates us, it regenerates us in Christ to have a new mind. So we don't have to think like we once did in our old ways. We get to reclaim the right perception of the image of God in the worth and dignity of human beings and the fact that our oneness has been brought together through the cross in Christ so that we are now one body, one people under him. There is no more distinction. And in fact, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3 when he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all 
and he's in all. Now, Paul is not dismissing one's gender or ethnicity in those statements. That is not what those are about. These are dealing with our, our justification in Christ. That's not dealing, it's not stripping away our individual ethnicities that we bring to the table. No, it's enhancing them. That's why it's so foolish to say, man, I'm colorblind. That was an old 90s statement that got real hot, real popular in, in modern music even, but it just, it basically dismissed anybody's ethnicity. That's not, we're meant to see one another's color. We're meant to see one another's ethnicity because that, that is how God created us and it's beautiful. So we're not talking about that right here, but rather what Paul is seeking to do is show us that our identity is now in Jesus. Our faith is in him. And that is what has leveled the playing field. As Jarvis Williams wrote, reconciliation to one another is not an implication of the cross, it is the work of the cross. This is not something that merely flows out of the cross as secondary or tertiary application. No, this is what the cross actually produces, a new humanity. Christ has made in himself one new man. And so we must address the sin of partiality in our own hearts and in our communities by the biblical solution that has been offered to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, because only the power of Jesus, death and resurrection has the power to actually make an old heart new and change your mind from your old ways of thinking to seeing people as God sees them. Only the cross can do that. There's a lot of other ways that we can create as human beings to try to get there, but they're all gonna fall short ultimately because what we need is a new heart. And so now what we can do is we can work from that unity that we've been given in Christ to ensure now and guard against that no other divisions or distinctions or partialities come between us. And that's our fourth point that we are commissioned now as new creations in Christ, we are commissioned to represent God's kingdom on earth. The church becomes God's chosen vehicle to demonstrate the power of the cross to take a world divided by partiality and make them whole in Jesus Christ and one new man. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. Listen to these words. He says, the whole purpose of God doing this saving work this way to bring Jew and Gentile together is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God might be displayed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The whole point of the gospel is to show God's power to bring two different people together through the cross. The church is meant to display that but sadly, as we know, Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he once famously said, Sunday mornings tend to be, remain one of the most segregated hours in America. Our gatherings have not given the best witness. Our assemblies have not given off the best witness of what we know the power of the cross has done. And yes, I realize there are many other reasons other than racism why churches can be monolithic in their gatherings. There can be cultural preferences and worship styles and neighborhood demographics that could lead a church assembly to be in monolithic. I mean, just a few months ago, I had the pleasure of hanging out at dinner with Brian LaRitz, an African-American pastor, and we're just talking about this very thing. And it was encouraging just to hear him even say that, man, we gotta be careful 
about crucifying churches because they're all white or they're all black or maybe all Hispanic, because honestly, much of our churches are gonna reflect the neighborhoods that we're in and another a number of other circumstances that lead to that. So we gotta be careful not to call all of them universally sin for being who they are in the neighborhoods that they are. But certainly, we cannot argue that much of our current reality of how the church has been shaped was rooted in hundreds of years of partiality and even laws that forced these separations so they've just remained that way by and large in great part. And so as a church though, we need to hear this, as ambassadors and representatives of the gospel, a people eager to preserve our unity in Christ, as Ephesians 4 speaks of, and give witness to the power of the cross to reconcile, this is gonna require incredible intentionality for us to truly be kingdom representatives and be the voice the church was meant to be. And so given that, I just wanna share with you a few things that are on our elders' hearts right now of how we long to be better stewards of the manifold wisdom of God that's put on display. We, we long to be better representatives and give better voice and representation to what we know the power of the gospel has done. And I think the starting place that we do agree we all need to start on, and I'm calling this for every member here at Northway Church, is that all of us, the first thing we have to do is we got to start with our own hearts. And we need to do some introspection and examination in our own hearts to ensure there is no aspect of pride or partiality of the old self that we're carrying with us today. And where there is, we need to repent of that where needed. I mean, James, James speaks to this same thing, this, the sin of partiality in the church, how it's still, it can still exist. James chapter two, verses one and following. James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he gives an example of how this can play out in a church. For if a man wearing a gold ring and his fine clothing comes into your assembly and then a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, you say, hey, sit over here in a good place. While you then say to the poor man, uh, you need to stand back there or maybe just come sit down at the feet here. And uh, if you do that, are you then not making your own distinctions among yourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts? See, James says there can't be partiality and we need to, we just need to do some examination. Can I encourage us in that examination? I recognize right now, racism's a real deal, but I also recognize the term racism has been hijacked. On polar ends of the camp, there are many who believe racism doesn't even exist. It's just nowhere to be found today. And there are others who believe that everything is racism. And none of those are biblical definitions. I would encourage us, use the term partiality. The idea, that's what the Bible uses, partiality of, of being partial, of showing favoritism to one group and exalting one group at the expense of another. That is partiality. And so when I say examine ourselves, sift your own heart. Go, Lord, like Psalm 139, search me and know me. Is there any part of me that is partial to any people group over another that has thoughts that aren't in congruence with the gospel? And then may we repent of those. But I think secondly, what one thing our elders feel burdened about right now in the season in terms of representatives is we've got to do a better job raising our racial IQ 
of raising our awareness and education of ourselves in areas where we may have ignorance. It may not be willful racism or partiality, but maybe there's areas of ignorance and we wanna raise that to better understand others who are in other experiences in our community that might be different than our own. And that's gonna require a number of things. One, we wanna do a better job as a church of putting more faithful, biblically tethered, gospel-centered resources out on this issue. And so we're gonna be compiling even more of those in the days ahead and putting them out that we have read through, that we feel reflect sound doctrine and can help us grow in our understanding of true reconciliation. We wanna do a better job with more equipping classes and better uh, training, even in our leadership development here in the church of understanding uh, disparities amongst minorities and racial tensions that may still be there and partiality that can wage war at us and, and how to better understand and educate ourselves in those areas understand the experiences of other minority groups, again, that are in different places than maybe some of us are. And so we wanna raise that racial IQ, wanna create more spaces for conversation. We need to get the heck off social media in terms of educating ourselves. We need to do this through the church and we need to be a leading voice in this, that this has gotta be part of our everyday discipleship of what the gospel has done. But thirdly, we also want to, in, intentionally engage in meaningful relationships and partnerships with, with churches and individuals of different color and culture and ethnicity who hold to sound doctrine and gospel truths. You need to know this. Our elders, we long for a greater representation of diversity in our church, both in its membership and its leadership. And here's why that's not a bad thing. That We don't long for that in terms of tokenism or some sort of affirmative action, something like reverse racism. No, we long for that diversity because we know that's what we're gonna experience in heaven for the rest of eternity from Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. And so we'd long to have a taste of that here. We don't wanna be just monolithic in all of our ways of thinking and understanding. We, we, we wanna have a, that diverse group of people that the Lord has saved of Jew and Gentile, of multiple different aspects that are also in our community around us. And we'd love to taste that here in our own assemblies. And that we know that's gotta be more intentional steps on our part of really um, creating more opportunities for conversations and voices and seats at the table and having representation in different places because that beautifully reflects what we already know to be true about what Jesus has done. And we are taking intentional steps, both in our membership and our leadership, and, and, and certainly in, in the way that we're seeking to relate to one another. And that needs to happen, again, through personal relationship. We've got to go out of our way to spend time with people who are not like us. That's a good thing that we can embrace. And uh, in, in, in doing that, we also need to understand, and when it comes to, to loving our neighbor, and this is probably one of the biggest things that we wanna put out in front of us is we wanna love our neighbors better. We wanna stand in the gap against any sort of partiality or injustice in our community, in any of these disparities. Um, when we see true racial injustice occur, we need to give voice to it. We need to step into those spaces. And I'm speaking to myself right now. We need greater courage to do so in this time. Not everything that you see on the news um, is racial injustice, but neither is nothing either. Spend some time talking to members of our church who find themselves in some of these spaces and just listen to their stories and you'll see the pain, you'll hear the pain. 
And we should all understand, man, that the, the church should be the leading voice in this of the image of God, of the power of the cross. And we should point people to that faithfully. Loving our neighbor in this way is not capitulation to the culture, it's conformity to Christ. And that's a good thing. And we shouldn't have to apologize for that. Loving and engaging and standing up and empowering those who are marginalized in our community is not cultural capitulation. That is conformity to Christ and what he's called us to do to love our neighbor well. And so as we do that though, can I just say one last thing? Fifthly, as we understand we are created equally in God's image, we are corrupted totally by God's, by our own sin, and we are recreated sufficiently in God's son, and that we are also um, kingdom representatives of God's kingdom here on earth. As we labor in this effort, I know it's fatiguing. I've talked to many of our minorities who are fatigued. I've talked to many of our members in general who are just exhausted by this right now. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us, I know we're tired right now, but let us hold out hope. What God, what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is not done yet. And we are reminded, John tells us in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, that's our standing. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, but listen to this, listen to what he says. And what we will be, the final product that's coming has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in this purifies himself. You wanna know how to be purified in a world that is so contaminated by sin and just awful rhetoric right now? Put your hope in Jesus to know that he has a plan in place that will culminate in the perfect reconciliation with every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne being perfectly satisfied in him. Let us now hope in that and not grow weary as we continue to labor towards a kingdom mandate of biblical reconciliation that is found through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end, can we? Father, I just come to you with great lament, great lament over the pain that we see in our culture right now, pain that I know and many in our community has existed for way longer than any of us have been alive. Lord, may we take that posture as brothers and sisters who can enter into difficult spaces and hurt and weep with those who weep. But God, let us not be without hope. You have given us hope in Jesus Christ. We as your church, nobody has inherited the glories of reconciliation like we have tasted as your church. So God, who better to give voice to the power of the cross than us who have already received it? Would you help us here at Northway to be bold with the gospel, to enter into these difficult spaces and shine the light of Jesus on them? Give voice to where we see the sin of partiality occurring in our communities and our own hearts, that we might repent from them and call others to do the same, that we might all then turn equally to the joy that has been given to us in the perfect sufficiency on the cross. We do this laboring in hope of the day that you will make 
everything new. And we trust in you till then for your glory, for our good in Jesus name. Amen.